Mark chapter 4, if you'd like to open your Bible there or navigate on your tablet or your phone. Mark chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through 20. The topic, Jesus lets us know what we will be doing throughout the current age by telling and explaining the parable of the sower. The title of our message, On With the Sow, This Is It. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, with your word open before us and ears to hear, and the Holy Spirit in this place promising to teach us, how can we go wrong? Minister in that place where you divide the soul and the spirit and show us your great love, proven on the cross, faithful every day. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. The news media gave her the nickname, the Black Dahlia. Her given name was Elizabeth Short. She was the victim of a much publicized murder in 1947, one of the oldest unsolved murder cases in Los Angeles history. It may finally be on the verge of being solved thanks to a soil sample. A cadaver dog reacted to a site at a suspect's former residence, and soil samples have been sent away for lab testing to determine if there are traces of the young lady's remains in them. Soil samples are the prominent feature of Mark chapter 4. Jesus tells a parable that we call the parable of the sower. Nothing wrong with that title, but it could justly be called the parable of the soils because that is where the major emphasis lies. We'll see that there are four types of soil and that there are tests to determine the types. The soils represent the spiritual conditions and characteristics that can be found in the human heart. With that in mind, I'll organize my thoughts around two questions this morning. Number one, are you willing to admit your soil type? And number two, are you willing to submit to a soil test? Let's take a look, first of all, in verses 1 through 12 at admitting our soil type. The religious authorities from Jerusalem had declared Jesus the agent of Beelzebub, which was their name for the devil. The multitudes that pressed upon him did so for healing and for deliverance, not so much to repent of their sins and to receive forgiveness and eternal life. Jesus reacted to all this by adopting a new way of teaching. And so in verse 1, he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching. Now, Jesus had used parables previously, but now he would use them primarily. We'll see why in a moment. Parable is from a word that means something like to cast alongside. Spiritual truths can be difficult to communicate, or they can be dry when they are presented. A parable is a reference to everyday things that is cast alongside a difficult spiritual truth in order to communicate it simply and effectively. Jesus told the parable of the sower. Here it is. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. Some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. 
But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. Now, to plant your field, you'd go out with a bag of seed slung over your shoulder, and you'd broadcast it by hand into your field. After the entire field was covered with seed, you'd return with a hand plow or oxen pulling a plow, turning over the soil so that the seed was just barely covered. Some of the broadcast seed would fall on the wayside. If our sanctuary here were your field, where you are sitting would be the main field that you are sowing into, and the walkway down the center and on the sides and up here in the front would be the wayside. It was unprepared soil that functioned as a walkway and was therefore somewhat hard. The broadcast seed would just sit on top of it completely unprotected. Flocks of birds would follow the sower and eat the seed that fell on the wayside. It's like Nigel said in Finding Nemo, birds got to eat. So there's nothing you could do about it. It's like when you're eating at uh, Disneyland and all the little sparrows are underfoot trying to get your, uh, you know, French fries, which you're happy to give them, but not your beignets uh, and stuff. So you have to draw the line somewhere, you know. But uh, so, and those of you, seagulls do the same thing, only they're trying to eat your baby. Uh, and so, so the birds would come and they would take the seed. Uh, sometime after the plowing, you discover that some fell on stony ground. This reminded me that when we bought a tract home here in Hanford years ago, uh, it uh, had no yard. It was up to me to put in the yard. Uh, I was happy to just pull my car right up to the front door, uh, but Pam said, that's a little bit ghetto, uh, and would you please quit doing that? And so I finally got the courage. You know me, I don't do home do it yourself very well, especially that was in the day before the internet, if you can imagine that. You couldn't Google anything. You're just in a gaggle of trouble all the time. But anyway, uh, so I was going to put in seed, and um, so I rented a rototiller. I'm rototilling along. I'm going along great. All of a sudden, I hit something hard, and I figure, well, there's a rock beneath the surface. And sure enough, there was rock beneath the surface. Turned out to be where one of the cement trucks had dumped its excess load, uh, and it was a rock the size of Half Dome. Uh, well, it seemed it was as big as Half Dome, but it was too big to move or to dig around. I had to get one of the brothers here in the fellowship who happened to own a tractor and a dump truck to come and remove it for me, and uh, it was just incredible. So right below the surface, but had I planted over it, that grass would have come up quickly and I would have thought, man, what's going on there? Well, but then it would have withered and died because the sun would scorch it and it had no real root system and no way to get moisture. Uh, conditions were there for great, uh, great for quick germination. Now, Israel, I'm told, is like this with many, many rocks. And if there aren't rocks, there are limestone shelves in many places below the surface. And so um, no matter how well you try to prepare your soil, in those ancient times with just you know, plows that were only maybe yay deep, you would ultimately throw some seed on rocky ground without knowing it. Then there are the weeds. My dad used to remind me, you've got to pull out the roots. This is an absolute bedrock principle of youth. One of the most important things that you could par uh, uh, relay to your child was that you've got to get the roots of weeds. In fact, it's, it's the number one thing on my dad's list of what he actually taught me. 
Of course, now we have weed eaters, which just whack weed. I guess we're taking revenge on weeds when we do that. We don't want to kill them. We just want to torture them. Go ahead. Come on up. I'll get you again next. Yeah, you'll be there next week. And so will I. I know there's Roundup. Although I didn't know there was Roundup until I moved to the valley. It's, Roundup is not, uh, maybe I was just stupid, which, don't say anything. But uh, I kept, you know, one Sunday I was doing a message about how I couldn't get rid of weeds. And one of the guys came up, have you tried Roundup? And I'm thinking, what do cowboys have to do with? <laughs> but I acted, well, no, I, I don't have any Roundup. And so he came over and he sprayed. And then I thought, I'm going to figure this out, you know. And so now... Now I both torture and kill weeds. Just depends on my mood. Uh, Just when you thought it was hopeless to be a farmer, you're reminded of the bounty that the remaining plants can produce. 30-fold, 60, or 100. Some of you who have fruit-bearing trees in your yard, you think, man, who planted that and why? Because you don't have time to pick it. And and it just falls and it's it's terrible. We put in an olive tree, you notice, out on the side. It's a 99% fruitless olive tree. We had a crop this year of one olive. And uh, great olive oil from that thing. But anyway, uh, (laughs) so nothing new here in the parable of the sower. Everyone living in Israel knew these things. If Wikipedia had been a thing in the first century, this would be the entry under soil types. You'd you'd click on soil types in Wikipedia and you would read this description. After what was probably a long, pregnant pause for emphasis, Jesus gave this application. Do you see how I did that? Sort of short, pregnant pause. It's an oratorical technique to draw you in. Too much Turkish coffee will do this to you. But anyway, and he said to them, he who has ears to hear... Let him hear. Well, that's different. Essentially, Jesus said, go figure that out. They were going to have to work at understanding what Jesus taught. No more freebies from Jesus. It was time to separate the disciples from the disinterested to see who was following Jesus for who he was and not simply for what he could do for them. Why this radical change? Well, his disciples were wondering that too, so they asked Jesus, To clarify, verse 10, when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parable. The 12 guys Jesus had specially chosen who would go on to be commissioned as his apostles, other close followers, they were all understandably confused and curious. Commentators sometimes criticize them, pointing out that they waited until they were alone to ask about the parable so as not to seem ignorant in front of the crowds. I'd counter that by pointing out that even with Jesus' subsequent explanation, there are Bible teachers who still remain confused about the parables. You can get a lot of different interpretations of the parables, especially the ones that follow the parable of the sower. Uh, And so, you know, we have a policy here where we are not quick to criticize the first century disciples, the apostles, and especially Peter, because we're going to see him in heaven. And he's a big dude. I mean, he, remember when they were trying to pull in fish one day and they couldn't do it? Say, Peter, come on. And he's like, Man, he's a big, brawny fisherman. He's the brawny guy. On the, you know, he, that's his brand, by the way. And uh, so I don't want Peter mad at me. I want to be the guy, hey, Pete, Calvary Hanford, pro Peter. But anyway. <laughs> 
I'm glad they asked and that the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to record Jesus' explanation. Verse 11, he said to them, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. The mystery of the kingdom of God. That phrase is, as Donald Trump might say, huge. It's a huge phrase in this chapter. The kingdom of God promised to Israel in the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, that was no mystery. Many of its features were recorded, beating plow, or, uh, swords into plowshares, uh, those kinds of things were very, very much communicated about the kingdom. A mystery in the Bible is always something previously unknown that is being revealed for the first time. The nation of Israel rejected Jesus as their king, and with him they rejected the immediate establishing of the kingdom of God on the earth. Now, this hadn't officially happened yet. It wouldn't for some time. But if you remember the end of chapter 3, the official delegation from Jerusalem was accusing Jesus of being in league with the devil. And that would continue until their full and ultimate final rejection of him as their king. As a result, Jesus would return to heaven to await his second coming when all Israel would be saved and see him as king and then enjoy the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God on the earth. The question that naturally arises is, what is going to happen, what is going to be happening between those two comings, between Jesus' coming in the first century and his ascension into heaven and his second coming? The answer is the mystery being revealed through the parable of the sower and the other parables Jesus will tell that describe the progress of this age during the wait for his return. He will tell us that the predominant feature of the age between his two comings is that the gospel will be seed spread by sowers into the soil of men's hearts until the final harvest at the second coming. The book of Acts, that's very simply what it is. It is the record of these men sharing the seed of the word of God, finding good soil, reproducing, and then those men going out and so on and so on Uh, throughout the age. Jesus quoted from the sixth chapter of Isaiah. It related a time in Israel's past when the Jews had refused to receive God's word. Jesus said it was also a prophecy that was being fulfilled in his day, as in a similar way the Jews were rejecting him. This is not a general teaching about certain people being unable to hear the gospel and receive Jesus. It is a specific prophecy about the people of Jesus' day who saw his miracles and heard his teachings but made a personal choice to reject him as their king. They hardened their hearts to the word and to the works of God. They had rejected the light so they would be given no more light but rather would be left in the dark. Even that which they had would be taken away, meaning in part that their king would ascend into heaven. Only I would add that Those who had ears to hear among that group, any of them, and who really were seeking after God, could discern the meaning of these parables and eventually be saved. Uh, And so that's what's going on. This is a massive change in Jesus' teaching strategy because of the rejection of the nation of Israel uh, and the fact that the kingdom would be delayed. And so verse 13, he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? 
This reads like another minor rebuke, and maybe it was. At the very least, Jesus was letting them know that listening to the word of God was going to take personal effort. He wasn't going to always explain everything as a detail to the crowd. They were going to have to work at it. He would explain it to his disciples. Salvation is not by works, not at all. It is the free gift of God. It's received by faith, where faith is not a work, simply a response to the work of God. Once you are saved, there is work to do, and part of that work is to seek after God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. We love to sing that and read that in the Psalms. We need to ask if that is true. Is that true of me? Am I the deer panting after the watering brook? Or am I less like the panting deer and more like the hibernating bear? A hibernating bear can go months without drinking water. I was fascinated by that. I wanted to know why that was true. And so I Googled it. And it turns out that when they're hibernating, water comes from the breakdown of their fat. And so the hibernating bear has excess fat, breaks down into water to keep them alive. It's possible for us to become fat and then live off of our reserves rather than daily seeking the Lord for a fresh supply. Let me give you an illustration, not to burden you, but simply as a measure of thirst. And if this means, if this hits with you, that's great. If it doesn't, don't get burdened. When I was a young Christian, I would always get the Sunday teaching in order to listen to it again. I believe that the Lord had led me to that particular church at that particular time and that he was not just teaching me the Bible, but that he had a message for me and he would speak to me through uh, that teaching. And you've experienced this, I hope, at this church or other churches where you think, wow, that, that was right for me. It was exactly what was going on in my life, as if, did you call Gene and tell him what was going on? So, and, and it's the Lord, because the Lord does that. He brings you to a certain place so that you can hear what he wants to say to you. And it's great. I listen to all kinds of people on the radio and on podcasts and all that kind of stuff. Great to listen to all that. But that's not necessarily a message for you. It's, it's good, solid Bible teaching where you get an understanding of the Bible, but it may not be directly for you. And so I was excited to always get to Sunday morning and to hear the word and, if I, and, and to listen to it. Uh, and if I didn't get to Sunday, all the more to get uh, the teaching. Now, in those days, the studies were recorded on what was called cassette tapes. <laughs> C-A-S-S-E-T-T-E, if you want to look that up later. Those are in museums now. Uh, there's a whole wing of the Smithsonian that has cassette tapes. Now, I don't think that's true, but uh, they've been replaced by MP3s. You can download directly to your tablet or smartphone right through the air. It's like magic. Or from our website, you can burn your own CD or you can subscribe to a free podcast. And wow, there's the study right there. If you're old school, you can have the weekly study transcript delivered to you via email so you can at least read the study. Let me ask you this. If you miss a Sunday at your church, do you feel at all compelled to listen to or read the study that you've missed? You don't have to. I'm not saying that it makes you more or less spiritual. In fact, if you come up and tell me this morning, I always get the tape or, you know, I always read, then I'll think you're less spiritual because you're bragging. 
And so it's not a measure of your spirituality. It's a measure of where our hearts are at in terms of thirst. If you simply ignore the message and think, well, I, I, I had a good reason I couldn't go to church. I was working or something. There's, you know, obviously, we don't make people come to church and, and people have to miss. But if you, even if you have a good reason for not being at the service, do you care about what was said? Do you ignore the message and just say, well, I missed the parable of the sower. I'll just pick up uh, next week with the rest of the parables. You might be living off your fat rather than getting fresh water. That's all I'm saying. You might be more like the hibernating bear than the deer panting after the water. In his interpretation, Jesus is going to compare the four soil types to conditions and characteristics that can be present in the human heart. As we move into that application, the question to ask is, am I willing to admit my soil type? Now, it's an important question because we tend to think that if we are saved, we are only always good soil in which the word of God flourishes. Now, it's true, the people with good soil are obviously Christians, they're obviously saved. We're, not sure, we're pretty sure the first category is not saved, but the other two, it's a little bit unclear. But just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you only always have good soil in every field in your heart. It's a little more involved than that. We can think of this as one person who hears the word at different times in his or her life. We all know people who maybe seemed completely hard to the gospel as if the devil snatched it away, but later came to the Lord. That same person, although saved, can be stumbled by trials or persecutions, and that same person, although saved, can be distracted by the cares of this life, and for a time at least, live a marginal Christian life, producing little or no fruit. No one person, it seems, is limited to one type of heart throughout their lifetime. Thus, the door is open to honestly assess my current soil type as we submit to the Lord's soil test in the remaining verses. Are you willing to submit to a soil test, verses 13 through 20? Now, before we trusted the anonymous voice that commands our every turn via GPS, which is kind of weird, really, isn't it? You don't know where you are, you don't know, you kind of, you know where you want to go, and you say, Google, get me there. Okay, sure. Why would you trust that voice? But you do. But before then, we had something in our glove boxes called maps. <laughs> Remember that? In fact, you had dozens and dozens of maps, because you would need at least three maps to get from Hanford to Fresno. They were just, and then when you, you'd unfold it, you remember? And it was the size of one of these stained glass windows. You'd need your kids to hold it for you while you found yourself on the map. Uh, if you could pull over and spread out the map on the hood of your car, uh, you, you, it had all kinds of crazy symbols and colors on it. Didn't look anything like what you thought it would. And then you would finally try to fold it back up which was near impossible. And so you would just put it in the back seat and hope to do it later. And then you'd say, hey, where's the map of LA County? That thing got trashed a long time ago. One of the kids barfed on it going to the mountains or something. And so maps. Uh, lucky for you, however, there was on the map a legend. How many are familiar with that term, the legend of a map? Well, God bless you. It was also called the key. Legends are a little box in the corner of the map, and they gave you information under, uh, that was essential to understanding the map. The scale, little symbols, and what they meant, colors, and what they meant. 
The parable of the sower is the legend, is the key parable in that it is first and foundational and it unlocks the mystery of the parables that follow it to describe the things that we can expect between the two comings of Jesus to establish the kingdom of God on the earth. And so it's the foundational parable. For example, I'll give you a quick example. We're going to read another parable after this where the mustard seed grows into a great tree and birds lodge in its branches. Commentators argue, are the birds good? Are the birds bad? And many commentators who have their own understanding of the kingdom age say, oh, the birds are good and here's why. I'm going to let you in on a secret. The birds can't be good because they were not good in the parable of the sower. In the parable of the sower, Jesus said the birds were agents of Satan who stole the word away. They can't be bad there and good in the next parable. And so it's a key. It's a legend that helps us to understand the whole flow of this age. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Sure, once again, this reads like a mild rebuke, maybe, but what comes through is the understanding that this is the parable that sets the stage. The sower sows the word. Anyone teaching or preaching the gospel is a sower. The first sower in this context was Jesus, then his immediate disciples, followed by all the disciples made after them. Whoever believes in him, you and I, if we're Christians, are sowers of the word of God. The word, God's word, the Bible, that's the seed. It's great illustration because just as the seed has capacity for life within it, so the word of God is alive and powerful, able to save to the uttermost those within whom it takes root. Peter, who was present at this explanation, would later write, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living, enduring word of God. And so Peter got this lesson. He understood that the word of God was like a seed that would hit the soil and produce an effect. Sower, seed, then soil. And for our purposes today, we're concentrating, as Jesus did, on the four soil types as a test of our own hearts and of our readiness to receive and to go on receiving this incorruptible seed to produce lasting spiritual fruit. Verse 15. These are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Seed that is tilled over will take root because there's life in it. The reason everyone does not respond positively to the gospel is that Satan is at work in this age and he has strategies to take away the word that is sown in human hearts. Have you ever brought a friend or a family member to church or to an evangelistic outreach and you've thought, this couldn't be any clearer. This is the gospel as it should be presented. This is speaking directly to my friend or my family member. I'm going to have to hold them back because they're going to want to get saved before the altar call. And then you look over and they're clipping their nails. Hey, I'm going to get some coffee afterwards. And nothing is going on. Jesus would say the devil is at work somehow robbing that word from their hearts. I remember Greg Laurie at Raincross Square when they first were starting with evangelistic concerts. He would have to say, and this was, it was sad that he had to say this, Christians would go and they would listen to these Christian bands. And then when the altar call came, Christians would get up and leave because they thought, well, I'm saved. I don't need to be here. And Greg would have to get up and say, please, if you're a Christian, don't leave. Pray because there are people here who need to get instead of, oh, excuse me, pardon me, pardon me. 
And, and, you know, you're walking over unbelievers and allowing the devil to steal the word from their heart. And so it was ridiculous. So I had to quit doing that. <laughs> I was guilty of it once or twice. Well, once. I was guilty of it once. And then after that, that was the end. So I, I understand. I was a young Christian. What do I know? Many of us were like that where the word got stolen. I can recall many times before I was a Christian that the gospel was presented to me. One time in particular at UC Riverside, I was walking across campus near the tower there and two guys came up to me, probably Campus Crusade for Christ, and they handed me a tract and I had an overwhelming sense that I needed to get rid of that. It was, there's, I, it was a spiritual warfare I didn't recognize at the time, but I thought, I have to get rid of this and there just happened to be a trash can right next to me. And so as soon as they turned around, I threw the thing away, never gave it another thought. It was a devil trash can put there by Satan. And that's why I tell people when they're out witnessing and handing out tracts, make sure you're not handing out tracts near trash cans and that it's in a zone where littering has a stiff fine. So when you give the tract, say, hey, I'd like you to read this. And if you drop this on the ground, 500 bucks, buddy. I'm not, no, that's not true, but. Well, you know, that happens. People, you, you go out street witnessing and people just throw the tracks away. They fill the trash cans, you know, and stuff like that. It's a satanic way of, of robbing people because they, he blocks them from seeing the word. Verse 16, these likewise are one sown on stony ground who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness and they have no root in themselves and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now, the gospel is so powerful that it can produce effects in a person's heart before they make a decision for Jesus Christ. This person maybe came forward to receive the Lord, or you would say of them that their eyes are open to the truth. They're beginning to seek the Lord. Sometimes you even ask them, hey, do you want to pray to receive Christ? Well, no, not yet, but, I, but you can tell there's something different about them. They're, they become aware of their life and of their sin and of their need for something. And so they're starting in that direction. But when it becomes difficult to actually walk with the Lord or make a decision for the Lord, they stumble, meaning they're offended that it's not going to be easy. Now, I would argue that this can describe believers too. We are warned, are we not, to never consider it strange or unusual when we fall into various trials. Why do we need that warning? Because we always think it's strange when we fall into various trials. And some of us, and we know other people who have been so stumbled by trials that they're not really walking with the Lord anymore. You wouldn't say they're not Christians. They have a profession of faith in Christ, but they don't want to have anything to do with Christians or the church or the normal flow of the Christian life because they're wounded, they're hurt uh, by something that they believe God allowed into their life that he shouldn't have because they're Christians. Uh, and so they're in this kind of holding pattern. Truth is, we are stumbled when trial or trouble hits or enters our lives. We would say it's the shallow response. We get mad at God and remain in a spiritual fog. It's a soil test. If I stumble in my trial, then it's indicating what? I have shallow soil. Good news for us, our shallow soil can be dealt with. We can break up the rock layer that is beneath that word by realizing what's going on and the roots can go down deep. And that's what needs to happen. If you're in a 
holding pattern because of some trial or tragedy in your life, you're not really full on for God, then God wants to break up that rock in your heart so that you can be fruitful again. Verse 18, now these are the ones sown among thorns. They're the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things enters in choking the word and it becomes unfruitful. Now this would be the soil that probably best characterizes life in these United States. We've been blessed and we're prospering for the most part. Nothing wrong with prosperity. In fact, God himself promised Israel they would prosper physically if they obeyed him. We're not Israel. We're not promised physical prosperity, although we enjoy it. We're promised spiritual prosperity. But Israel's example can still be instructive to us. We can still learn from it. The more Israel prospered in the Old Testament, the more they ignored God. Their prosperity caused them to think more about physical things than spiritual things, leading to an emphasis on caring about their wealth. Their prosperity deceived them into thinking it was something they deserved rather than a gift from God. The more they had, the more they wanted in a refusal to be satisfied with what God had provided. If you have any familiarity with the Old Testament at all, you know that they became unfruitful, and that's an understatement, in their relationship with God, causing him to discipline them by bringing other nations against them to destroy them. Now look at it this way. If you're in love with someone, you will forego just about anything and everything to be with that person. The things you forego are not bad. They're not wrong. It's just that they become insignificant to you. Guys especially, you remember this. You fell in love and your, your guy friends would call and say, hey, we're gonna go blank. Play racquetball, go to a movie. We're gonna, uh, you wanna come? No, I'm, I'm gonna be with Pam. Oh, the old ball and chain. <laughs> Marriage is an institution, but who wants to live in an institution for the rest of their life? (laughs) She's really got you. That kind of thing, you know. But you know what? You didn't say, well, I have to do this because this is, you know, uh, I'm being commanded by by marriage laws, you know, to not be with my friends and play racquetball, uh, you know. Yeah, you you guys go. Have a good time. Maybe you'll meet somebody finally and be a real person. Uh, This is what I'm going to do. I'm only doing this stuff because I don't have this, you know. And so I'm, I'm better off. You guys make your jokes. That's fine. You're not not on the wedding list, you know, that kind of a thing. And so that's the deal. You know, we're always in Christian and in the church always talking about, oh, you know, you can't do that and you can't do it. You can do any of that stuff that's legal and lawful and, and there's nothing wrong with it. You just don't want to. And if you want to, more than you want to be with Jesus, you've got a heart problem. There's something wrong with your soil. And that's what we're talking about this morning, soil testing. What would you rather be doing than spending time with Jesus? Now, Jesus doesn't say you can't do these other things. He doesn't say you can't bring him with, hey, can I come play racquetball with you guys? I mean, you can play racquetball as unto the Lord if you don't have a, 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 you know, something else going on. That's fine. But I think you get the point. Whatever it is might, and I am careful to emphasize might, be a worldly care or a deceitfulness of prosperity or some desire for other things. Then there's good soil, 420. These are the ones sown on good ground who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, some 100, which is tremendous yield, by the way. Normally, in agriculture in those days, they would be happy for a 10-fold yield. 
And so all of this is way beyond the norm. So you sow the seed and some of it will fall into hearts whose soil has been prepared to receive it. Those folks get saved and begin a life of producing fruit. Want to go on being good soil that produces fruit? Of course you do. And here's how you do it. Here's the secret of fruit production. Jesus said you hear the word, number one. Number two, you accept the word. Number three, then you bear fruit. Hearing the word isn't merely listening to it or being aware of it. It is, for lack of a better word, active listening. The kind of listening Jesus indicated when he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Because of the strategies of Satan to steal the word, even if you're a Christian, the Lord, or Satan wants to steal the word from you. And we have our own natural propensity to be stumbled or be selfish. We need to really work at hearing the word of God. Uh, the story I mentioned earlier about myself listening over and over again to cassette tapes, that worked for me. Uh, I liked listening to it and I would pick up different things each time. Some of you are note takers. If you have a real Bible, it's filled with notes and dates and things that God spoke to. Some of you just take notes in a kind of a diary kind of form, but there needs to be something more. None of us, maybe one person in this audience would be so smart that they can really retain everything that they're hearing. You have some kind of didactic memory or something like that, but the rest of us are pretty stupid. And I tell you the truth, a week from now, I won't remember 90% of what I taught you without reading it. Sometimes I read my old studies and say, man, that's, that's some good stuff. <laughs> man, that's, wow. You know, where did that come from? Because it's the Lord. But you have to have some technique, some method for studying, for hearing, more than just sitting and listening. Uh, one of the things I love about what we've been doing for, for a long time now is the five or ten minutes we dedicate at the end of the service for us to just wait on the Lord before we get up and go to the cafe and grab that pastor's pour or whatever it is. Uh, we have to think about what just happened. The Lord's been speaking to us in the worship through the word. We're praying for others and it kind of is that kind of a time. We need to do that, whatever it is, so that we are hearers of the word. Our time of waiting is important. Now, Jesus also said good soil accepts the word. It comes down to this. Will you do what God says in his word despite it being contrary to your will or uncomfortable or inconvenient? And before you say, of course, because that's the proper response and that's what we all want to say, there are times in all of our lives when we hit the wall of God's word, when it's telling us to do something or be something that we're not really excited about and we have this struggle with God. We need to be pre-submitted to the word of God. When we're sure we know what God is saying, then we have to live within those boundaries. Obviously, the most profound example would be marriage. Regardless of the statistics, I know there are always, you know, the world is trying to say there's just as many divorces among Christians as there are in the secular world. I don't think that's true, but it doesn't have to be true. There are too many divorces among Christians. If you're divorced this morning, I don't know it. I'm not talking to you. You work that out with the Lord. But it's clear in the Bible there are biblical grounds for divorce, 
And there are not biblical grounds for divorce. And if you're in the category where you have no biblical grounds for a divorce and you get a divorce, you know what you've just done? You've sinned. And you've said to God, I do not accept your word. I, you don't know what it's like living with this person I used to give up my friends for. We were in love, sure, but something happened. You know what happened? You fell in love with your coworker. You allowed something into your life to ruin that relationship, most likely. But regardless, I don't want to get off on that. The truth is, am I going to do what God says or not? Ten years ago, if I explained this principle to a couple that was struggling, there was a kind of shame that came upon them. They said, you know, you're right. We don't want to dishonor the Lord. We love the Lord. We're going to try and make this work. Ten years later, lately, when I say that to couples, they say, yeah, okay, fine. So it's sin. God forgives sin. Grace abounds. I'm not going to stay with this person. You're telling me I don't have grounds? I admit I don't have grounds, but you don't know what it's like. I'm not going to do it anymore. Whoa. It's, it's a sad thing. And so this is why so many Christians are not producing any fruit because they hear and they maybe even dig into the word, but they won't accept it. In some area of their life, they're knocking against it and saying, I disagree with the word of God and I'm going to go my own way. And that's just not going to work. God is not going to be preempted in that way. And then finally, it says, we can bear fruit. Only when we hear and accept will we bear lasting spiritual fruit. Do some bear more fruit than others? Well, it seems that way. But I think Jesus was also indicating that in my field, in my heart, I have potential to go on bearing more and more and more fruit all the time. In New Testament times, it wasn't really feasible to go through your field on your hands and knees to identify all these soil problems. I mean, you couldn't, you didn't have time or the ability to really dig deep enough to find limestone shelves and things like that. But if you knew there were rocks or the roots of weeds in the field, you'd be wrong to ignore those patches of ground. I mean, you would do so. If you say, well, there's a bunch of weeds coming up here. I better do something. I better get the roots before I throw my seed, otherwise I'm just wasting time. If you are saved, you've been born again by the incorruptible seed of God's word. And you can go through your field, in fact, we've been doing it this morning, and test the soil. You must perform these soil tests because all of us are prone to stumbling and to selfishness, but what we really desire is to remain spiritual and to have a harvest come out of our lives to be sowers of the word, to see others come to the Lord, and to see our lives bear fruit. 